morning again. If you would, open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time where we can gather as your people and feed on your word. I ask that we would remove distractions from our hearts. and We would lay down our pride. And I ask that we would be changed by your word, that your spirit would be moving and active and powerful in this room while we look at the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would do so for your name's sake. It's the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So last week, we talked about uh, the first verse and a half, really, of this passage. And I asked, as we read those passages about Jesus, some of the most exalted Christology there is in all of Scripture and in all of literature, period, Are your affections stirred? As we look at these words, these amazing words about our Lord, does that do anything? Does that move you at all in your heart? And I said that if it doesn't, that doesn't mean you're necessarily not a believer. It just means that you may have become dull of hearing. But this is an important, significant question. Does your heart respond to the truth about Jesus. You may say that you believe and you hold these things to be true about him as an issue of doctrine or an issue of intellect, but what does it do in your heart? Is it true of you that while you don't see him, you love him? That's the question. So, We also talked about the significance of the coming of God's son and that he has now after long periods of silence and a long sequence of prophetic prophetic utterances, God's son finally showed up. So I just read the passage here where, you know, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we have this great anticipation being fulfilled in the coming of God's son. I wanted to read to you, this is a quote I ran across in my uh, study for this passage. 
a quote from a contemporary of the author of Hebrews. Is a Jewish author, and this is from uh, Lang's commentary. Here's, here's how he said it. The distinctly Christian perspective reflected in the opening lines of Hebrews is thrown into bold relief when the writer's statement is compared with the temporal contrast developed by a contemporary who viewed the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD from a Jewish apocalyptic point of view. So listen to how similar this sounds in its structure. This is what the, uh, the Jewish people said at that time. In former times, even in the generations of old, our fathers had helpers, righteous men, and holy prophets. But now the righteous have been gathered and the prophets have fallen asleep. We also have gone forth from the land and Zion has been taken from us. And we have nothing now except the mighty one and his law. So do you feel the significant difference? They didn't have hope as much as we can, really at all, because we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So regardless of what else is going on in the world, even if Jerusalem has been destroyed, we have the Messiah. God's Son has come. This is similar to what you see in Isaiah. Right before Isaiah gives you the vision of God sitting upon his throne, he opens with these lines that we usually pass over very quickly. In the year that King Uzziah died, the reign of Uzziah began with great anticipation and hope and excitement and that God would bring the restoration of Israel through Uzziah, but then he died prematurely. But Isaiah shows us that even in that year in which King Uzziah died and hope was all but lost, he sees God sitting on the throne, ruling from heaven. And so even if things are going terribly for you, even if Jerusalem has been destroyed, as it were, God has spoken to us by his Son. And the significance of that event echoes even 2,000 years afterwards. And it can carry you for your entire life. Also, we talked about the significance of looking at the Bible's account of Jesus. So I kind of gave you some homework last week to read through Hebrews if you could. And also begin reading through the Gospels. So if you haven't started that, I'd encourage you to do so. Because that's what we're doing. We're re-examining or re-looking at Jesus and his superiority over everything. So this week, we're going to focus pretty much exclusively on the second half of verse 2. So don't freak out. There's uh, 303 verses at that rate uh, in the book of Hebrews. At that rate, it would take us six years uh, to get through the book. Um, so yeah, that's, that's actually pretty quick, you know, by, by certain standards. But uh, things will speed up. Uh, we just have to uh, cover these verses very carefully. While you can go too slowly through a book, the greater error would be, to, would be to go too quickly and to miss important things. So, in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here's the phrase where we will spend the majority of our time whom he appointed the heir 
of all things, through whom he also created the world. So it's significant that this phrase is held a little bit in tandem with the phrase that comes after. He appointed him the heir of all things, and if you look at the original language, it's almost like a yet. He appointed him the heir of all things, yet it was through him that he created the world. So you're supposed to see Christ as the bookends, as it were, of creation. That it was through Christ, by Christ, Jesus was the agent of creation, and yet he is also appointed the heir, the inheritor, the owner of all of it. So he's there in the beginning, before all time, and he is there reigning and owning and ruling all of it in the future. It's Christ throughout. The plan didn't change. So it's also significant this type of role or this type of honor is only something that God himself can hold. Who can be appointed the heir of all things? Everything. That doesn't just mean this planet. All things. He appointed Jesus the heir of all things. It is only a position God himself can hold. He is both the original or formal cause and the final cause of creation. It's also significant to note how God operates, right? God is the central character of the Bible. And the point for our interaction with Scripture is to understand who God is. And how he works, what he's like, what is his character like, what are, what are his likes and dislikes, what does he love, what does he hate. And in this phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, you see a significant indication of what he is like. It's not just an automatic legal process. Jesus was there in the creation, it was through him that all things were created. So it should make sense naturally, well of course Jesus is the heir, right? He's the Son of God. But he was appointed the heir of all things. He was appointed in a way that we can see. He was appointed in a way that made it obvious that it was his right and that he had earned it. This is similar to what we see in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We saw this in Philippians back in October. Therefore, because of what he has done, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Father wanted him to be clearly and obviously displayed as the rightful heir of all things. It's not just something that happens in the courts of heaven that we don't get to see, that is too lofty and glorious for us. He came down and lived a life in a way and died a life in a way and rose from death in a way to show obviously beyond debate that he is the one who is the rightful heir of all things. Uh, let's also look at this word, the heir. 
This is obviously used in an anthropomorphic sense, right? It's not as if God the Father is going to die and Jesus is going to inherit everything sort of like we think of heir or inheritor. Some think that. Rather, this idea is that the Son is entrusted with the rule and reign over all of creation. Precisely because everything he does and in every way he does it is to the glory of the Father. All authority has been given to him. He's been made the heir because, just like it says in Philippians, I've already quoted it, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? And this is what Jesus said multiple times while he walked among us. I do nothing of my own authority or for my own glory, but only for him who sent me. I speak only as the Father has given me. So because he obeyed and submitted to the Father perfectly and glorified the Father perfectly, that makes him the rightful heir. And now we come to this phrase, all things. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Like I've already said, you shouldn't think of that only restricted to this planet or just the stuff of creation that includes you and me. Every idea, every thought is to be taken captive, submitted to Christ. All things. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, just fast forwarding a little bit. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, I'm, I'm quoting the Bible here, which is encouraging to me because sometimes I forget where stuff is in the Bible. The author of Hebrews, which authored the Bible, doesn't remember where this came from. He didn't have the internet like we do, but it has been testified somewhere. This is Psalms 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's who Jesus is. God subjected the world to come to Christ. He's the heir of all things. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Does everything appear to you when you look at the world and everything that's going on, and even in your own heart, that Jesus is in control and reigning and ruling over everything? Does it appear that way? No. The culture is at war with the things of God. Our hearts are often at war with the things of God. But it has been subjected to Him. He's already been made the heir. He rules and reigns presently. But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because 
of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of the God, by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting. This is that same idea. It was fitting. This is what God wanted to show. It wasn't just, like I said, something that happened in the courts of heaven beyond our comprehension or experience. He came down and lived in a way before us, a way that was recorded for us to read and understand so that we would understand that it is appropriate or fitting. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. All things. Again, I want to come back to this idea that this includes you and me. Regardless of how your heart responds to God, regardless of if you're a believer or not believer, you are owned, you belong to Christ in at least two ways, and maybe three. He created you through Jesus, God created everything, so you are His by right of creation. You're also His by right of His being appointed the heir of all things. And if you're a believer, you're also His by right of redemption. You're owned. You are not your own. So we've looked at this uh, phrase, this uh, part of the sentence, whom He appointed the heir of all things. So what I want to do is show how this appointing, how this him being made the heir of all things was anticipated in the Old Testament. And why is this important? Because we saw last week that Jesus is held in at least some contrast to the prophets, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, So there is some contrast. Jesus is superior to the prophets. Jesus is greater than the prophets. They were mortal. He is immortal. They were many in number. He is one. But they are not destroyed. Their testimony is not pushed aside because of Christ. Jesus is the one that they prophesied. So we're going to look at these prophets, these men who died, and see how this Jesus being appointed the heir of all things is anticipated in the Old Testament. We've already heard a few of these passages in the Advent candle lighting. So if you want to turn to Genesis 3, we're going to be moved. This is one of those sermons, right? Where you got to flip around to different places. Genesis 3, I'll pick it up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. He said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular masculine pronoun, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's an anticipation of the crusher, as one of my professors said in seminary. The crusher is coming. And the serpent who deceived our first parents in the garden was crushed, even while bruising the heel of the one who came. So more than just what we see depicted in the defeat of evil, we see that this is a role reversal. The reason I read the the verses preceding, God created man to lead his wife and them together to be God's viceroys, rulers over all creation. And what you see when sin enters the equation is reversal of all of that. The husband listens to his wife, sins. The wife listens to the serpent. So it's a reversal of how things should operate. And so in this prophecy, you have this crusher, the one who crushes the head of the serpent, coming in to rectify everything. And so we know from Paul in Romans that Jesus is the second Adam. That he comes to rule over all things in a way that our first parents failed to do. So this is, even in the beginning, even as curses from the Lord are being given out because of sin, we have a promise that this is going to be set right. And one will come and crush the serpent. Now go to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 4 through 7. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, uh, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And if you're just reading through Genesis, right? You're doing your daily devotions and you read through this. You might miss what Paul later picks up on in Galatians. He said he did not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to your offspring, referring to one who is Christ. So this land that has been promised, all the promises to Abram or Abraham as his name was later changed, are fulfilled and given in Christ. He is the offspring. 
who is coming. Everything is being entrusted to him. So even this early, Christ is being set up as the one who will be appointed the heir of all things, the inheritor of all of these promises. Go to 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel seven, verses twelve through sixteen. When your day, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So we know that in the immediate context, this is fulfilled in Solomon. But in the greater context, the only way this prophecy could be fulfilled in totality, that forever word, is that an heir to David's throne would come and inherit all of these promises. Look at Psalm 24 as well. And I'll read the whole psalm, actually. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Jesus is both the one who, through a life of clean hands and a pure heart, is able to ascend the mountain of the Lord, and He is also the King of glory, that every seat of power and every representation of authority on earth must open up their gates and let the King of glory come in and take over. This is the anticipation of the coming son of David. We, are, we read this one as well. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. I'll pick it up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle, battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus' anticipated hundreds and hundreds of years before he came as the one who would be the heir of all things. The increase of his government and his kingdom will know no end. This is the Jesus we celebrate during this season. This is the Jesus we worship. Just a few more. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. One last one. This is probably my favorite. Daniel 7. Beginning in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, you can hear, and I mentioned this maybe two weeks ago, depending on what you listen to or what programs come on on TV or what magazines you may get, they may question, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. You know his favorite title for himself? Son of Man. And the Jews knew what he was referring to. He even says in one place, because he is, referring to himself, the Son of Man. 
He's essentially saying, this is me. I am this one that was prophesied. And he says it over and over and over and over. And you can see why the Jews wanted to put him to death. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I'm the son of man, Jesus says. There are more. There are many, many, many more. And obviously we are familiar with the prophecies concerning Jesus around this time of year, but we usually concern ourselves with the prophecies that show up in the nativity, right? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, wise men will seek him. You have all, all the ones that we're familiar with. But what is also happening in the advent of, G, of God's son, Jesus, is that he is coming as this one, the one who's promised to rule over all creation. The one whose kingdom shall know no end. There's also a New Testament anticipation of this being entrusted or appointed the heir of all things. And we don't have time to look at really many of them at all. We'll just look at one. From the Revelation to John, first chapter, verses 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who, who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. But not one day in the future, not when he returns in glory, John speaks of him in the active sense, in the present sense, as the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is the heir of all things. And this is anticipated thousands of years before he came. And then the author of Hebrews says, through whom he also created the world. We won't spend a ton of time on this. So if it is through Jesus that God created the world, meaning everything, the universe, then Jesus is not a created being. That's significant. He's eternal. He's equal with God in glory. He's of one essence with the Father. So let me ask you this. This is important. We don't usually think in these terms. We, the, this is not common day language or thinking for us. What does it mean that it was through Jesus that God created the world? All of God's mighty works are through Jesus. Have you thought about that? God created the world through Jesus. He's redeeming the world through Jesus. And he will one day judge the world through Jesus. 
Jesus is the beginning and end of creation, as contained in the phrase the Alpha and the Omega. He is both the reason it exists in terms of his active role in creation and the reason it exists in terms of the end goal. It is for him. It is through Jesus with the Logos, right? That's the word John uses to describe who Jesus is. This is the reason or the logic of God. Everything God wants to do and communicate about himself is contained and expressed perfectly in his Son. There was also a tradition within Judaism based on Proverbs 8 that wisdom was in a sense a a secondary being to God and God used wisdom to create the world. And in fact, it kind of reads that way if you look at Proverbs 8. Wisdom is personified as being the agent of creation. So the author of Hebrews writing to Jewish people says, okay, that's great that you have this wisdom tradition, but all of that is in Christ. Christ, and, and you can hear this in Paul, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. All of it is in Christ. So what does this all mean for us? That Jesus is appointed the heir of all things. So because Jesus is appointed the heir of all things, we must continually re-examine our lives. First, Because he's coming. He's returning, so we must be ready. You can't read through the Gospels without this sense that God has entrusted us with things. You know, that you have the the Proverbs of the servants being entrusted with talents, the, the, the keepers of the vineyards, and then the master comes back and expects some type of return. It's all throughout Jesus' ministry. He gives us a sense, hey, this is coming to an end, so be ready. And it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a shock. And you'll be held to an account. So be ready. The, The one who owns everything is coming. This is the plumb line. It's in Isaiah, Amos, And Zechariah, he measures everything by that perfectly straight plumb line of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the heir of all things, the inheritor of all creation, is the story of this world. There's no greater story. That's the point of creation. God entrusting or giving everything over to his son because it's to the glory of the father so how does your life line up with that story if jesus is the heir of all things if he owns everything if it's all for him what does your life look like in comparison is there continuity or discontinuity What about your everyday, your dreams, your desires, your plans, your career, what you're striving for? If you hold those two things up, all all of this, all of my stuff, all of my desires and plans and wants, 
and then you hold it next to the fact that Jesus is the heir of all things, do those match well? That's the call of the Gospel. Look at Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 19. Hopefully you're all familiar with this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You might say to me, well, that's easy for you to say. You know, you're a pastor, you're in ministry. You can do a whole lot of ministry and a whole lot of things for Jesus and still be completely out of sync with the fact that everything is being given to Jesus. No matter who you are, this is your solemn charge. And just because it may look like on the outside that you are lined up with the story of Jesus being the heir of all things, with this plumb line, it doesn't mean that you are. You can just read the seven letters to the seven churches that we referenced in the Revelation to John. But I'll also show you another passage from Matthew. Hopefully you're familiar with this as well. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Also, because Jesus is the heir of all things, we have to re-examine our motives and our emotions. What's going on in the heart? Do your emotions, does what you're feeling line up or make sense if you add to the equation that Jesus is the heir of all things? So I'll just list a few. Fear, what are you afraid of? Afraid of people, afraid of other people's opinion, you're afraid of failure, afraid of death, afraid of retiring without enough money. Do any of those really make sense if Jesus is appointed the heir of all things? To the Christian, everything that you could possibly be afraid of has either been defeated forever in Christ and or is under his rule and reign today. What about anxiety, that nameless and festering fear? You're not even sure what you're afraid of. You have just this overwhelming sense of anxiety. To the Christian, the one who is the heir of all things is forever for you. So does that does allowing your heart to feel that anxious line up with the fact that Jesus is the heir? Pride, this is a significant one. Pride is the source of all sin. And when you look at it in light of who Christ is, it looks insane. 
to the Christian, God has given you eyes to see the glory of Christ. So expose yourself to Him and humble yourself. Abraham Kuyper, a German theologian, said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And Paul says it this way, What do you have that you didn't receive? It's very easy for us to get into the mantra of our culture, which is, look at what I've accomplished. Right? Our whole resume system of getting different positions is built on that. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've become. Look at the authority that's been entrusted to me. Look at all these things that I can do. Look at my ability. Look at my skill. Look at my talents. I'm a CEO. I'm a mother of 20, you know. I'm an entrepreneur. I've created businesses. I'm a pastor. I'm a deacon. I'm a missionary. Whatever it is, I am a, and we find our identity in that. That's what pride is. But Jesus is the heir of all things. He owns it all. It's being entrusted to him. And when he shows up, listen to what's going to happen. This is from Isaiah, Isaiah verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 19. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Pride does not make sense if that is the Jesus you worship. Pride looks insane before the anticipation of Jesus being made the heir of all things and inheriting it all. So how do you think of others? How do you think about yourself? We also have to reconsider our motives for obedience and service and ministry. Most of the time, we think in this way. He did this for me. Fill in the blank with however you will. He did this for me, so I will do this for him. Right? You can even find it on plaques. He died for me, therefore I will live for him. But that's self-serving. We need to move our perspective to the way Job saw it. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. 
This is very subtle and it will destroy your faith if your true obedient your true motivation for obedience and service is not delight in him. If it's because of what you think you can gain from him or a way of life you think it might look like if you serve the Lord, you can hear it on the radio all the time if you tune into Christian radio. Trust your life to the Lord, just see the things that happen in your life. Just see how good it can turn out if you just trust the Lord. If you read the Bible, it doesn't really look that way a lot of times. Things end badly if you follow the Lord, not in the ultimate sense. We must serve based on a delight in Him and not in view of His blessings or threats. Lastly, we can re-examine this season During this season, we need to retrain our hearts to treasure this Jesus. There is so much else that we can treasure during the holidays. It can be family. It can be the things that we experience. Festive time or food. We can treasure even the fact that he came to rescue us above the fact that he came to rescue us for him. So the invitation of Christmas is to join Christ in his humiliation so that we may participate in his exaltation. And I'll end by reading the first two lines of this old German hymn. It's called, Jesus lives and so shall I. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and reigns supreme and his kingdom still remaining. I shall also be with him ever living, ever reigning. God has promised, be it must, Jesus is my hope and trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that Jesus Christ will inherit all things and even now reigns from heaven. Give us by your spirit the wisdom and the strength to re-examine our lives in the light of that glorious fact. I pray that we would lay down our pride, that we would abandon our anxieties and fears in light of the fact that you rule and reign. And I pray that for those in this room who are not right with you, who have not repented of their sins, who have not trusted in this Christ to save them on that day when he returns, to judge all flesh. I ask that they would seek out me or one of the other ministers here to lead them to you. I pray that we would all be amazed in your presence and staggered by the glory of your rule and your reign. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.